Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real. Guys, it's your uh, movie reviewing and re-reviewing podcast. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Hello, Noah Ballard. What's going on, man? Um, you know, just chilling. How are you? I, I miss the, the sweet sound of your voice. Yeah, it's, uh, it feels like we've, it's been too long since we just uh, sat down for between one and two hours and, and talk the hell out of some movies. So I'm, right. I'm looking forward well, to I have to, yeah, I have to apologize. I've been sort of on the road the past uh, few weeks right. and just picking up weird life experiences. Yeah. I wonder chance before we begin, if I can, if I can uh, tell you a story. Sure. Uh, as long as it uh, relates to the, what we're going to talk about. I think in a word tenuously. <laughs> begin so it's appropriate that we're doing movies featuring individuals with special powers because i've had a pretty spooky couple of weeks these movies are of course grounded in a narrative sense by the special person in question but what creates the drama of these films is the deeply cynical people around people with special powers which if special powers are real we certainly are so i want to take i want to talk for a minute about cynicism and belief. If I can relay a recent anecdote, I was in Venice Beach, California a few weeks ago, and my friends Lauren and Lauren wanted to get their tarot read. As a pretty level-headed New York Jew, I'm willing to concede things like kismet, burning bushes, and moments of divine intervention when you find a spot to sit when you really need it on a crowded subway car. But tarot smells a bit like bullshit. So we go into this woman's beachside bungalow, into her sunroom, and one by one, we have our tarot read. The Laurens go first, and they hear stuff about their changes in career, boyfriends lost and found, family relations that need tending. Spooky, they say, because they really think this woman has told them something meaningful. I remain skeptical and unconvinced, and for $30, it seems a little steep to have someone spew some generalized nonsense at me. But whatever, I'm on vacation, so fuck it. So this leathery old woman begins to make my tarot circle from the deck I've shuffled three times and cut, gesturing to the cards, asking me questions. She says, do you have a coworker who is often bothering you with mindless questions? Sure. Was he born in January? I have no idea. She says, I'd stay away from him. He's a troublemaker. Okay, lady. She says, I see that you're in a relationship Well, that isn't quite true. I just had been on one first date right before coming to L.A. It's going to be a slow burn, she says, but I think this one is meaningful. Uh Uh-huh. She's a water sign. I said, what's that? She said, Aquarius, probably. She turned over a few cards. Uh Uh-oh, she said. What? You have a big ex-girlfriend, right? Someone you dated in college? Uh Uh-huh. She says, born in May, maybe June. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I see her presenting herself to you soon. All right, lady. I know exactly who she's talking about. We both live in New York City now. And yeah, 
there are a lot of people here, but I'm probably going to run into her eventually. But it's true that we hadn't run into each other in the past three years. Now, the old woman says, soon. Two weeks. That's quite soon. She says, but you don't need to be curious, Noah. You've already had your ending with this person. Go the other way. So I return to New York City. At work, wandering about the literary agency where I spend my days, I notice one of the obligatory birthday signs that hang in the kitchen for a few weeks before you take them down. It was sitting on the desk of my work foil, Stephen. January, it read. Troublemaker. Interesting. Then, I went on a second date with the girl I'd seen before my trip. She's really nice, and it was a really good second date. I didn't even get unforgivably drunk. We went to a charity happy hour, and then I took her to dinner at a place near my apartment. We laughed. Food was good, a good time. I asked her as we walked back, Do you know your sign? Yes, she does. It's Aquarius. Then, just this morning, I'm on the Manhattan-bound Q train, minding my own business, listening to Paula Cole's Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? <laughs> <laughs> the train stops at Canal, and who is there, right in my path, standing there on the platform? It's Andrea, the girl who just murdered me the year after we graduated. We make eye contact. I could easily turn to her, say something like, hey, but I remember the words of that old woman on Venice Beach. She said that I'll be presented with a situation. I can be a boy and engage, dig at some old scars, lick my wounds. Or I could be a man and realize that I've had my ending with this person, that I'm okay now, and make a walk to the other side of the platform. So that's what I did. And that's what I want to talk about when we discuss movies about people, specifically kids with special powers. One sees dead people. One has the key to the world beyond. One just moves things around. But what if one of them can see the future? And what if I just met her? What if what we learn from this genre is that you need to believe that such things can be real? That's my question, Chance. We're talking The Sixth Sense, the new Jeff Nichols film, Midnight Special, and the 1996 uh, children's movie based on a Roald Dahl book, Matilda. Let's talk a little bit, as we sometimes do in our written remarks, about kind of like why these movies exist and uh, what you think they have to do to be successful. Noah, do you want to start us out with any point that we can bounce around? Um, well, as I sort of alluded to in my opening, um, I think it's interesting to judge these movies, like, not by the special person, like, character, but by, like, the world and how it interacts with them. Totally. I think that's the most interesting part of these movies. And ultimately, whether they're good or bad. Yeah. Agreed. I think if, uh, if you don't get enough of, um, enough of the world, they become a little nonsensical and i i would just i would reframe that uh just a little bit for my own purposes um i think there needs to be a a, a, a delicate balance of kids and adults and the relationship between them needs to be kind of fluid like the parents need to be challenged by the wonder of what they see and i think that the kids need to be contextualized by the parents doubts and fears and that's kind of what you're talking about should we dive into sixth sense I would I would love to. 1999, it's uh, the first time most people heard of M. Night Shyamalan. Um, and the last. <laughs> no. 
it's, cer- it, it's certainly been a downhill slide, though. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, people people have seen this movie. Uh, it made. Oh, everybody's seen this fucking movie. Three hundred million dollars in the theaters, which uh, I can't really think of a of an on its sleeve horror movie that's uh, come close to that since. Um, a PG thirteen one, no less. Yes, it is true. Um, should we synopsize? Why don't we synopsize and spoil? Because come on, it's like it's the quintessential. So Bruce spoiler. Willis is dead the whole time. <laughs> yes. Um, well, that's that's what I wanted to talk about. I'm glad you let me spoil it because, like, yeah, this movie. Once you know that Bruce Willis is dead, it's like what do you? Wa- it's like what are you watching for? Right. Um, you're basically watching to see if it works once you know. Like, right. And I think it's an interesting question to see uh, what it tries to get away with and sometimes doesn't, sometimes doesn't. Okay. So what happens in Sixth Sense is in the opening scene of the movie, Bruce Willis playing a, uh, a child psychiatrist, Dr. Malcolm Crowe, has just won a prestigious award. He's celebrating at home with his wife. And he in a really weird scene. It's strange scene, is uh, like it's a, such a weirdly filmed scene. An ex patient who he does not remember climbs in through his window and shoots him, and that's where that scene ends. Um, we're telling you that he was killed <laughs> in that scene. Yeah. Um, then in the next scene, there is <laughs> yeah he's dead. So he's dead at this point. Yes. <laughs> there is some very uh, Shyamalanian. Uh, editing and then in the next scene uh, he's sitting on a park bench reading the file of the kid who of the person who shot him and then he sees Haley Joel Osment his supposedly like next patient because you don't know he's dead if you're watching the movie uh, he sees Hay- you just think he works for some like very questionable like state-run service yes, where he can do whatever he wants and report to no one with no home right. with no home base right uh, <laughs> uh. uh so Haley, and no car. Yeah, or car. Haley Jules is next patient. Um, little uh, little kid comes running out of his house, follows him to into a church. Uh, it turns out, you know, he has some of the similar symptoms as this uh, this person who who shot him in the first scene. The connection there is is obvious from the beginning. You find out that this uh, sort of tormented lonerish kid of a working two jobs single mother. Um, what's tormenting him is that he sees dead people. You know that also. Um, and well, you—it's surprising how long into the movie you actually see a dead person. Yeah, it's a while. But I'm saying that you know, in a cultural sense, that he sees dead people. It's the only thing, right? He's... Because in every movie montage ever is the scene of <laughs> Haley Joel Osment saying, "I see dead people um, all the time." <laughs> so then. For like the back half of the movie, Haley Joel struggles with that, and the uh, the twist to end all twist is revealed that Bruce Willis is dead. Bruce Willis is dead. And that's why Haley Joel was able to talk to him. Well, and- that's the thing is the movie. So the so the what Haley Joel Osment's gift is is he can see the dead, but what his the purpose of that is is to like put people to rest, basically. Yeah, let's like these are. Ghosts sort of stuck in between, you know, an an, uh, an afterlife and the real world. Yeah, he's kind of like a, a medium who's uh, dusting out purgatory a little bit. I see dead people. 
in your dreams? While you're awake? Let's talk about Bruce Willis. Okay. Let's just get right to it. I can't decide if he's like perfectly cast in this role or like the worst possible choice for this role. I think he is really well cast, but it's such an unlikely casting in the sense that right. he has to be so soft to everyone. Right. Like, he doesn't have the hardness of the quiet Bruce Willis roles, and he doesn't have the shit-talking of the mouthy ones. Well, what I find so like frustrating about the performance in retrospect, having only seen this movie like as a little kid... Um, in the theaters and like pissing myself. Um, well, that's another thing I want to talk about too, is like, is this movie actually scary? Mm-hmm. Um, but like, he only has like one expression, like his, his like, I'm dead realization is like pretty similar to just his like, <laughs> I'm awake expression. <laughs> you know, right. and then he like fumbles with that door and then like he realizes the whole thing and then he's got like a bullet in him. He's like, I'm fine. Oh shit! I'm dead. He doesn't so much die as get sleepy. <laughs> yeah, he's like ah, oh. and then he's just, sl- and that's why he's sleepy for like the movie before <laughs> that. It's because he's dead. <laughs> Can we talk about whether or not this movie is actually scary? Scary. Um, I think if you took out the soundtrack to this movie, it would just be a drama. That's probably true. I think the only thing frightening about this movie are, like, the violin cues, like, leading up to these, like, encounters with ghosts. Like, I don't think, there's nothing about it that, like, the camera work's so striking that I think it's actually scary. I just think you're being forced to think it's scary because of these, like, outside factors, mostly just the music. Yeah, it's... it's more suspense. And, like, this is an interesting thing, too, if you, like, look at... Shyamalan movies is you know he's like a huge like Spielberg fan like Spielberg is his hero not like Wes Craven so much more so right but people mistake him for the latter yes I would agree um so much more so than show you the most gruesome thing and and jump I think he he really prefers and I'm not stretching to say like this is probably his best work I think he really prefers to just like show a shadow flying. You wouldn't over call you wouldn't call Unbreakable his masterpiece. Um, I haven't seen Unbreakable in a long time. Do people think I that? I haven't either, but I think it's regarded as like the better movie. But this is his like household calling card film. No way! People really like Unbreakable better than this. I think, in a critical level, I think it's regarded as a better movie. We should watch it again. We should. Um. Yeah, but your point is taken. Like, this movie that, I don't know, it's, like, it's sneakily not a horror movie. And, like, the parts that are scary just come from, like, good directing. I think, like Spielberg movies, it's, it's like, it's so dynamic in that it's exciting for, like, a kid viewer and a teenage viewer. But for an adult... It's ultimately a movie about, like, family units and, like, the dissolution of a relationship and grief. Yeah. Um, You know, because they're both, like, it's, so you have these two sort of one 
parent or like one person couple units with like a cross to bear. Like you have, um, what's her name? Um, Olivia Williams or Tony Collette. You have Olivia Williams and then, yeah, Olivia Williams and Tony Collette against each other where Olivia Williams, you find out at the end is carrying the grief of this dead husband who was murdered right in fucking front of her. <laughs> and then you have Tony Collette who's balancing the burden of like where the dad went and like the mom died, like her grandmother or her mother, which is the grandmother to Haley Joel Osment just died. And she's clearly like not over that yet. And, like, just being a single parent to a kid who sees dead people. Yes. I like where you're going. Uh, one of the strong things about this movie, I think, definitely is the character formula. And it works really well, too, I think, in terms of what I talked about at the opening. The uh, the point of view and sort of, like, the fluidity with which you enter the movie. Like, the first... We were making fun of the scene where, you know, Bruce Willis doesn't have a car, so he's sitting on a park bench and watches Haley Joel leave his apartment and, and kind of run to the church to play his Latin yeah. soldier games. But that scene <laughs> is like really well directed and it's such a beautiful oh, yeah. it's such a beautiful way to The whole movie is like beautifully yeah. shot. Yeah. It's a great way to show how just how small this boy is, like running through the streets of Philadelphia yeah. and to see him framed in the doorway and so like you see it starts with people watching him and slower and slower and slower you get into Haley joel's pov until you start seeing right. dead people and that's a really good formula and as you mentioned the tony collette Haley joel relationship is great in the sense that they like they both have these you know po- oh she's such a good mom yeah they both have these positivity fantasies where like he's like you know at school today kids liked me and she was like well i won the lottery and got a good job like there's a real even among the fantastical there's a great kinsmanship about how they're both like struggling in real life there right well these are and that's what's interesting about this movie is that the characters are ultimately like pretty interesting people totally um and i think Shyamalan has struggled to find (laughs) similar characters yeah uh, in his later films i mean this movie if it is anything it's like clever right yes one of the one of the parts in retrospect that like just does i mean i guess we're encouraging you to rewatch this film and see what you think but like the fact that tony collette and bruce willis never have a conversation is just like stop they're just in the same room together which is like if you've never seen the movie that's the good thing about M. Night Shyamalan movies is that if you haven't seen the movie you don't know the rules of the movie typically until the end of the movie right <laughs> So, like, you don't know. Maybe adults just, like, sit and watch each other, and that's the, how they communicate in this movie. Like, the visual cues are so, especially in this movie, they're so, like, it almost exists in, like, a child's world. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, adults are just sort of there, and they don't really have relationships, and the only thing they really interact over is, like, major fights and stuff. M. Night Shyamalan's idea table is only so big, and things, like, start to spill off the sides. But this one, well, this is what I was texting you about yesterday. The idea that I think M. Night Shyamalan has only made, like, really ambitious, really risky student films. Yeah, I want to talk about this. Uh, Go ahead. Because, like, Christopher Nolan, like, has his, uh, the following. But then he follows it up with... um, Memento. Memento, which was, again, like, sort of a sleight-of-hand movie, a little bit more money... But then he follows that up with Insomnia, which is just like a straight up good cop movie. Yeah. 
And then he takes on the Batman stuff and then like the prestige and all that. But he like played by the rules of Hollywood. So whereas M. Night Shyamalan's Sixth Sense, like if you look at it empirically, it's like a, like a, a edgy student film that he got way too much money to make. Yeah. Based on like what he did before this. Then he does Unbreakable, which I think is considered his masterpiece. And then ultimately like what? Signs and the village and like Lady just like the, the just Yeah, which all would have I think been considered edgy like promising films if they had not been released after all these other edgy promising movies. Right. Um yeah, this was a really interesting idea that you texted me about, um, and I was sort of like trying to think of why, in a like in addition to, you know, just like the fact that, you know, some of the writing isn't that good, like why it's fair to like call these like student films. Oh, he's a terrible dialogue writer. Yeah, um, and it's not just that they're premise movies. Like we've talked, we've talked about, you know, like Charlie Kaufman writes a lot of premise movies but like he always draws you into some other idea that like you're not going to get to the end of to end of and i'm glad you use the phrase sleight of hand because i have that written down i don't like there is the twist of this movie and for most of america it was good enough to hide it the first time around but i don't think m night Shyamalan is a director who has a lot of like ultimate sleight of hand so i think that you, you you have these movies with one big idea and then, like, the movie is you, like, watching him, like, come up with and actively... The village is fake! Yeah, and actively <laughs> execute the idea. And that's what watching a student film is like. Like, oh, okay, this smart person, like, had their idea. Well, you can't, like, build a genre, though, or, or build, like, a body of work around the idea that he's going to surprise you at the end. Exactly. Because then you spend the whole movie looking to be surprised. <laughs> yeah. That's why Sixth Sense worked, because you thought the twist was like, oh, he sees dead people, and then, like, Bruce Willis helps him. The end. Nah, Bruce Willis is dead. Right. Right. I clearly... I have definitely have problems with this movie, though. I think that it is... I don't know why you'd watch it a third time or a fourth time, but I will give it a soft good good in the sense that I think it is like certainly like interesting for the character reasons you said. Um, and this is such a famous twist that it's interesting to see how he both succeeds, how he both succeeded and failed in like amusing people 17 years ago. See, I'm going to have to give this, like, pretty quintessential good bad. Okay. Because I felt like, yes, it was interesting, like, watching this movie after so long had passed, but I, like, did not enjoy watching you it. Didn't. Because I, I knew the twist. Huh. So that's, that's inherently... The journey was not worth it to you? I mean, it was worth it for the sense that I knew I could laugh about it with you <laughs> afterwards. Okay. But, like, I wouldn't have, like, I probably would have turned it off otherwise. Interesting. Okay. So I, I have to go with uh Good with quit but I think it's like a I think it is if it exists in this sort of vacuum and there's no other like M Night Shyamalan debate around it, I think it is like a pretty good like technical movie and like in a narrative way movie. So good bad for me. It's weird because like in the sense that it has the reputation it has where it's like good for one amazing surprise. It's an interesting movie in that it will always like sort of have to exist behind glass right it does have to exist in that vacuum well you weirdly respect it because you remember when it did get you exactly that's what it has so but it's i don't know it's like looking at a picture of yourself when you were surprised you're not surprised <laughs> by the picture 
<laughs> look closer, Noah. What's that lens flare? The movie doesn't explain. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of lens flares. Hey, now. Speaking of Spielberg acolytes. Let's, uh, let's do Midnight Special. Hey, by the way, from another writer-director who I think we ought to conclude should direct and maybe not write. Um, yeah. Jeff Nichols is the, uh, the writer-director in question. You might know him from 2011's Take Shelter, 2012's Mud, uh, and dude is not even 40, um, and this is his like latest uh, entry into a filmography that people are still calling promising. Okay, so basically, you're given the idea, the, the movie opens with, um, that you're overhearing a, a news broadcast that like a kid has been kidnapped, and you're in a, ho- a motel room with a kid reading a comic book, Michael Shannon, who's uh, horrifying, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, just generally. <laughs> just generally horrifying. And uh, Chance's favorite, uh, what's his name? Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton. Oh, man, is he strong and silent in this movie. <laughs> well, well, that's another problem with this movie. We'll get there. Um, and they, like, get him in a car, and he's, like, wearing goggles. Yeah, they drive, and then they get into some trouble, and then they get into more trouble. And then we cut to this sort of, like, cult camp run by Sam Shepard. Yeah. And, like, it, it seems that the boy has, like, been taken from this camp called only The Ranch. And then we go back to the boy, and he, like, we meet some people who, like, might have also been on The Ranch. And then we cut back to The Ranch, and the FBI's there, and Adam Driver works for the NSA, and he's, like, really smart, and he, like, looks at a lot of stuff and, like, pieces <laughs> things together. <laughs> And then, like, the chase is on. Yeah. And, uh... To find this boy. Oh, and then, so, like, the narratives you have going on are the boy with Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton, and then uh, eventually Kirsten Dunst. Yes. She came in pretty late. Yes. And then Sam Shepard, who we forget about 15 minutes into the movie, and then there's these two guys that Sam Shepard has sent to get the boy, to bring him back to the ranch. Yeah. And then Adam Driver and, like, the entirety of, like, the FBI trying to find this boy. And they seem to know something about him. And then the cult thinks he's their savior. It's very strange. Mm -hmm. But it's so convinced that it's not strange. Yes. It's so – that's what's, again, sort of annoying about this movie. In the same way The Sixth Sense is kind of annoying. It's like this movie knows – that like it's smart, but it also I felt like you know from the first ten minutes of this movie that they're not going to give you a clear cut ending. It's going to be a fuck you ending. Mm, interesting. Just from the visual style and from like the lack of dialogue, like no one's going to explain the ending to you. There's not going to be Morgan Freeman at the end of uh, War of the Worlds. Right. It's just going to be like a beautiful shot, and then like you fucking figure it out. You really knew so, that like, right away. Yeah, like I kind of ah. knew that. And I I kind of knew that from like the first cuz if it takes that long to piece together like what's even fucking happening like in the movie you're watching, yeah. they're definitely going to like fuck you at the end. Wow. See, you're you're upset and I don't know what's worse because I was so excited by the first 45 minutes of this movie and the realization Oh, I was too, don't get me wrong. came to me 
came to me slowly that it would not um out of out of fake profundity uh give me what i wanted what do you know about alton meyer i wouldn't know where to start you would have fits things would break it was like a feeling kind of feeling we need to know where he is there are some really good set pieces um oh yeah the movie's beautifully shot and the turning off just, of the goggles and driving at night or the turning off the headlights driving with night vision goggles is super exciting the scene at the gas station it's a great is scene super exciting um right it puts together like these great um just moments of sort of like awe and terror that are all like part of the chase and part of the conspiracy and you don't know how dangerous this kid is it's just like afterward it's like one of those movies that like really unravels in the hour after the movie you're like well i guess they didn't try to do that or like they didn't really do that um but sitting in the theater it's pretty exciting for the most part oh yeah oh i was at the edge of my seat the whole time Mm -hmm. i would say just the movie is like underwritten in a lot of ways um and yeah part of that just comes from the fact that it's so excited about like starting right after the exciting inciting incident right it's so excited about starting at the very beginning of the chase after the kidnapping that it just kind of refuses or doesn't have interest or doesn't have time to work its way back around to things like character and who people are and what their relationship to each other is right well you think that like and that's the the thing that i think bothered me about the beginning of this movie is that joel edgerton and michael shannon like are both the strong silent type like you can't have you need to have the steve buscemi and uh the peter stormare right right like you can't have both peter stormare it's not interesting (laughs) yeah that's really true like there's just not enough like relationship building there's not enough dialogue um you get that michael shannon cares about this kid because he looks at him a lot like what and yeah this movie again cast michael shannon who also starred in take shelter um although he had more to play in that movie but he's one of those people who keeps getting cast as like one of those like say something with your presence dramatic actors. Um, <laughs> and the reason everyone fell in love with him was Revolutionary Road where he got to have the juicy talking part. And it's kind of a right. bummer that he like keeps getting all these roles where he doesn't get to talk. He, have, his face have you is ever seen, Have you ever seen that movie, uh, The Missing Person with him? No. He, like, he plays like a very quintessential like Humphrey Bogart character, but like in the the present um mm-hmm. it's really fascinating we should watch that sometime you need the scene of so in i i kept thinking about this in terms of like um just like a spielberg movie and right you need the scene of chief brody at the dinner table like making faces at his son you even need the the moment where et phones home like you just need like an accessible human right. moment you know, we kind of talked about this with Looper, too, but, like, there's might be just this thing of, like, auteurism where, like, a young writer-director has seen so many things that he, like, intentionally doesn't show you the thing that you want to see. And sometimes you should just show us the thing that you want to see. They think you're a weapon. And the ranch thinks you're their savior. 
you don't get the scene of like driver like truly being dressed down by a superior you don't get the scene of like what the boy means to the cult you don't get the scene of Dunstan Shannon talking or even hinting about like what their relationship is like I think yeah. he's kind of outthought himself by not showing the There's- obvious I mean, there's no Spielbergian like uh, Richard Attenborough and Laura Dern eating the ice cream yes. scene. Yeah. Like That's just sort of catching example. you up to speed. Well, it's also like sort of a smart thing for like television syndication too. like, let's just catch us up to where we are then. Yeah. <laughs> just in case you're just tuning in. But yeah, I mean, like people need their hands held like a little bit more, I would say. Yeah. Both like in how you tell a story, but also like how you develop human emotion in the filmic capacity. And you know what, what he's done, I mean, he's, he's made a folk tale of a movie anyway. So like, right. don't get all, don't psych yourself out, Jeff Nichols, about like doing something that's been done before. You have done that. You just like did it in a confusing way. Right. Well, that's the thing, too, is I felt like, I mean, it was, like, overly ambitious in, like, what it didn't do. Right. Right. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it definitely, like, is in conversation with Close Encounters, which I also don't think is, like, a great movie. Not great. And then the other thing, like, this almost goes without saying, but we should say it, is, like, you know, because the adults are underwritten, your relationship to Alton, the weird kid, while the things he can do, and I mean... God, and they will not let they will not let you forget his name is Alton. The scene where you see his power for the first time is horrifying and very scary. Oh yeah. And like a brilliant scene. But like because the adults are underwritten, the kid, you don't know his relationship to anyone. He doesn't really get to act in the way Haley Old jo- excuse me, in the way that Haley Joel Osment or Mara Wilson right. in these movies get to act. And so you have this movie that at the end hangs everything on a kid. That we don't know. Right. And not like a kid you've seen in anything, like a new kid. Right. <laughs> this is one of those new kids. This isn't like Macaulay Culkin of the Page Master. This is like a brand new kid. <laughs> like, where did this kid even come from? Like, E.T. comes from another planet, right? Like, that doesn't make... it. it anyway, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Also, the other thing I found troubling was that I couldn't help but, like, read, like, molestation allegories... In a lot of it, from the very beginning, like from the very beginning. Yeah, that's where like, it starts. There's the creepy. There's yeah, like he's this kid at this cult, and they had to get him out. And then like this guy who misses being at the cult, like is in the bedroom alone with him, sh- like having him show him something. Yeah, yeah. Like it's very like I wonder what this movie in its heart is like trying to tell us. And then like the government doesn't know what to do with it, but they know they need to fix it. You know what I'm saying? You know, people talk about, like, late 70s Spielberg as, like, this guy who was really interested in conspiracies and, like, kind of the fear and cynicism of the 1970s. This is, like, a weirdly... For involving government agencies and having them chase after common people, it's a strangely apolitical movie, except for that one sort of disturbing undertone. Right. I mean... It's concerned with only one political issue, I would think, and it's like the way we treat children. Yeah. And what we. And, you know, like we give them these rules. I mean, that's the thing, too. Like, he can't go in the light, but then he has to go in the light. Ugh. Like, it's where. It's, it's very. There's something like just the allegory there is like somewhat troubling. Yeah, I agree with you. That's an interesting read. Yeah, I'm going to have to, like, if we can get to our ratings. Yeah. Um, 
I'm going to have to give it a bad good. Same. I think technically it's a well-made film, but I think the story is ultimately so weak that it like negates any sort of like cinematic stuff it has. But it is fun to watch. Like that is the fun part to watch. It's it's a well-shot like interesting movie to see once. Yeah, when this lands on Amazon, it it will entertain you. Um shall we hit number 3? Yeah, Matilda. Another allegory of Less subtle allegory about child abuse. <laughs> Very not subtle. Um, <laughs> this is just this is the uh, the child abuse uh, rom or the child abuse comedy that you didn't know you wanted. But with another allegory in it that I think is really interesting. Um, Wait, what's the allegory you're gonna pull out? Maybe we should talk about it when we talk about it. Okay. Um, <laughs> what well, you you, you want to do the plot? Chance. I'll give it my best go. So this movie came out in 1996. It is based on a Roald Dahl book. Um, If you don't know him, he's one of the most famous children's book authors of all time. He wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Matilda Wormwood is born to two parents who are married in real life, Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman, um, who just like could not care less about her from moment one danny devito is not psyched about the hospital bill they are not psyched to have a baby um so these parents care so little for matilda to the extent that she needs to learn how to feed herself in a wonderfully warm pancake making montage um that she has when her when her parents are off are off in the daytime working and doing whatever Rhea Perlman does in this movie. But the thing that ultimately develops is that Matilda's eventual telekinesis, ability to like, you know, move things around with her mind and create the illusion of haunting comes from the fact that she's just been left alone. Like this movie purports that that creativity in terms of baking and reading and graduating to more complex books and friendship and befriending adults like ultimately extends all the way to moving inanimate objects and that's the child with special powers you have and you know that these pursuits are of the truest and most innocent nature because all the montages are scored with rusted roots send me on my way (laughs) yes indeed it because that's like a very early montage in the movie it just really like struck a chord with me that like i didn't know what I was getting into as far as like watching this this old 90s children's artifacts. Once upon a time, there was a girl named Matilda. Hi, Dad. Get in the car, Melinda. Matilda. Whatever. Who was extraordinary in every way. Pretty soon you'll be able to do any multiplication, whether it's two times seven. Fourteen. Or 13 times 379. 4,927. Wow. Part of what I enjoy about this movie is the relationship between Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman, who, as we said, are married in real life. Like, they make for, I think they make for an interesting watch, like, if you're an adult watching this movie, because they just have, like, these, this weird shorthand that you know that, like, unhappy couples might have where they, like, miss an air kiss or, like, do, like, a weird pseudo-sexual dance, like, when Danny DeVito has has good news. I think they really create something to watch um, right. in terms of cultural reference at the same time as the kids are the smarter characters. 
Yeah, and let it be said too, if we didn't mention this already, that Danny DeVito directed this film. Yes, he did, and uh, and it what interesting has his, visual his, style! It definitely has his dirty little fingerprints all over it. You. <laughs> well, this movie's pretty like this is like a like a sticky kind of gross movie. Can you can you kind of give me that like all the visual cues when there's like food involved or like. Even just like how aggressive uh, the principal's mustache is, and like her sweat stains, like this movie's icky. Yeah, it's like uh, you know, part Ryan Murphy's People vs. O.J. Simpson in the camera in terms of zoom in intensity, but part like just uh, the idea of a child, like an adult getting in a child's face or having your fingers stuck in the mud. Because like, when is this movie set? Like, answer me, riddle me that. Well, before we, before we get into that, on the one hand, this movie like makes explicit something very obvious about the genre that even though children are small, that they have rights, that they are powerful, that they can conquer big things with their small minds and their wonder. And like that's very obviously stated um, when Danny DeVito is like, I'm big, you're small. I'm I'm right, you're wrong, simply because like I'm the parent. It's like an interesting like child's children's rights movie. Um but yeah, as the ultimate b- emancipation cry. But as for, as for when it's set, it's like one of the interesting there's sort of like a I found kind of charming the very broken English that it translated with from the UK to the US. Cause on the one hand well, Matilda lives with her parents in 1970s Florida while Rusted Root is playing right. and ends up going to a boarding school style non-boarding school that's uh, set sometime around when uh, Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. Um, right. With a, like, and then this like very like not Rusted Root score comes in to like sort of reinforce that you're in a very different like moment and trunchbull is not a figure that exists in the american lexicon you know she only exists in the english lexicon right by the way that she's dressed and like the way she carries herself that sort of like headmastery thing right but Um, she's like still this is not like a boarding school like presumably the school is in the same town because she owns she buys a car from danny devito despite not needing it right Despite never actually driving it because she, like, lives at the school or, like, near the school. But, yeah, it's just... The funny thing is just that, like, the book is from so much later than I would have thought. It's from 1988. Um, Yeah. And I just would have assumed it was from, like, when Dahl was doing his... It's a later Dahl. ...canonical writing, which is, like, uh, I think giant peach and chocolate factory are mid and late sixties, like something where, you know, world war two would have like weighed very strongly in the, in the English mind. Cause I think you have this interesting movie where Matilda's like confrontations with her parents. There's like a weird, like joke about capitalism and these sort of like TV dinner chugging grease using like fake Cadillac peddling Americans And she graduates from a battle with cheap capitalism to a battle with fascism, which is the the headmaster, which they ultimately overcome with communism, which is like all the kids like working together. And yeah, it just feels like something that's like allegorical for mid 20th century politics. Are you saying that this movie is a like 
uh, communist propaganda film? Um, I think at its most joyful moments, like it's uh, it's telling it's a you bold why. read, my friend. <laughs> it's I mean, it's Marx, man. It's telling you why it works in theory. In practice, you need that's you know. In practice, you need one great person with superpowers. You need an Ubermensch. So who's to right. say? I really loved its throwback to the page master when uh, books are better than watching TV. I think this was a more convincing like library love story than the page master. And the library love story was only two minutes. Yeah, she's really like searching for a mother figure in her life. And she finds one in Miss Honey. Um, Can we talk about that, though? Yeah, we should. Go ahead. So if you actually look at the plot of this movie, these two parents like are raising this daughter who they basically ignore, so she has to fend for herself or she would starve. Yes. A Harry Potter type movie. And then she meets this nice teacher, and then the parents continue to ignore her, and she like is full like fully abused by the principal of this of the school. The principal they, is like um, beginning of seven style abusing these kids. Right. Um, and then she frightens the principal so badly by threatening to expose the murder she committed. <laughs> so she leaves town. It's really. And then she lives with the teacher because the parents don't want her and sign her away almost immediately. Are you, so are you saying that it's kind of irre- irreconcilably dark for the style of American 90s kids movie this is? I'm just saying there's, like, talking about the ending and, like, the relationships they have. Like, there's, it's, that. I mean, this is why I couldn't really, like, figure this movie out. Because, like, that, that's such a sad, but also, like, childishly illogical series of events. Yeah. I don't know. Like, as illogical as it is, though, like, it, it's, it's just setting up a fairy tale or fantasy about how a child's ingenuity in the face of like a a big cruel like overly political world um can create something beautiful and i as silly as the rusted root song is like i uh, i was able to I was able to find myself in a space that I'm not always able to go with children's movies where like I was able to see what young kids and particularly like girls Matilda's age like must have, you know, just found so beautiful about this and the montage, like just this like idea about self-sufficiency and like hopefully as a 90s kid, your life was not a horror story in the vein of this. But like, you know, if mom went to go get milk for an hour and you had to stay home, uh, you can imagine yourself writing a short story about things flying around the living room while a song from the 90s played. I'm going to have to give this one the tiniest sliver over the line to good, bad. Okay. I think there's definitely some artfulness to the way it was made. And like, yeah, maybe maybe it's the most genius thing in the world and I just don't get it. But ultimately, I didn't enjoy how icky it was. Mm-hmm. It was icky. I just think the source material is really good and Mara Wilson is really good and the parents are funny and like the way it was made is like must have been kind of scary for kids. And you have Augustus Gloop 2.0 shoving that cake in his face. Augustus Uh, Gloop. (laughs) 
And yeah, it's going to be a soft good good for me. I have to say I was pretty much like charmed from start to finish, even with the caveat that the torment occurring on both sides from headmaster to students and students to headmaster was a little was hard to laugh at. It was hard to imagine someone in the room not being horrified by what they were seeing. Well, I think that this brings us to the end of tonight's episode. Yeah, I think we can land ourselves on a soft good good tonight. Yeah, Noah, it was so lovely to talk to you about these movies full of wonderment and... It's the same wonderment I get from doing this podcast, despite all the adults who say, hmm, should you be doing that? What does it pay? Um, right. Yeah. Folks, you can follow us on Twitter at Be Real Guys. Uh, listen to past episodes, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. We would love you to actually go to BeRealGuys.com to hear the episode. It's a wonderful website made by our Michael Todd, who we love very dearly. And congratulations on his engagement. Oh, Yeah. Buddy, Fal, good uh, to talk to you. Have a great, great night, to everyone. Talk to you too. Let's let's do this again. Okay.